0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm
1: Deblina Chakraborty
0: And around Christmas this year, listener Hillary sent us the book Assassination Vacation by Sarah Vowell about the assassinations of three U.S. presidents, Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley. And before I started the book, I figured of those three, I'd probably know the most about Lincoln's assassination. At least the scene, Ford's theater, the circumstances, Lincoln shot point blank in the head and the players involved, the actor John Wilkes Booth and his motley crew of conspirators. But I hadn't realized the entire breadth of the attack. The attack on Lincoln was really just one part of three planned assassinations that were supposed to go down that night. And I hadn't realized the intensiveness of the manhunt for Booth either, or the strange, sad stories about peripheral figures involved, like Booth's brother, the president's son, The Lincolns Theatre Guest, The Night of the Assassination, really proved to be a more in-depth and more fascinating story than I had imagined.
1: So in this podcast, we're going to talk about what happened the night of April 14th, 1865 at Ford's Theater, but also some of the events that happened long before that and long after. And if you're a Lincoln buff, we hope that you'll get to hear your favorite weird detail or conspiracy theory about this. And if you're not, then you're probably going to be in for some surprises. It's sometimes fascinating to extend the story beyond the point that we're used to hearing.
0: Which for most people is probably Booth jumping over the railing of the president's box and escaping. But the first semi-surprise of this podcast is going to be that John Wilkes Booth, who is now, of course, famous firstly as an assassin and secondly as an actor, was really a pretty big star. I always kind of imagined him as a middling actor and that fact was emphasized, you know, just to make it all the stranger that he was an assassin. He was, however, a member of a great theatrical family, albeit kind of a lesser member. But that's just because the other family members were so famous. Booth had been born in Maryland in 1838. He was the ninth of 10 children of genius Brutus Booth, who was an English actor, very famous in England, who had moved to the United States in 1821. Booth Sr. was one of the most famous Shakespearean actors in the country, maybe second only to Edwin Forrest, who you might remember from last year's Astor Place Riot. And partly to keep Junius Brutus from getting too wild on the road, he had a drinking problem, his three sons got into theater, too. And the middle boy, Edwin, became a star to really rival his father. We're going to talk about him a bit more later. The youngest, meanwhile, John Wilkes, had a rockier start with his theatrical career until he joined a Shakespearean company Based in Richmond, Virginia.
1: Yeah, once with that company, he toured the country, including the South, and became celebrated for his good looks and athletic acting. But the intensity of Booth's political opinions made him a bit of an oddball. He was extremely pro slavery, anti Lincoln, and an ardent supporter of the Confederacy. While some historians suggest Booth served as a Confederate agent during the war, the only thing stopping him from taking a more active role for his cause was a promise that he made for his mother.
0: So he wouldn't actually enlist in the Army. Yes.
1: So by the autumn of 1864, Booth started making plans to kidnap President Lincoln drawing in other conspirators to meet at Mrs. Mary Surratt's Washington, D.C. boarding house. And Booth, for one, already had a pretty good in with the president, despite his earlier flings with actresses, including an incident reported by Thomas Lowry in America's Civil War when the actress Henrietta Irving tried to stab Booth in the chest, grazing his face instead. A lover's quarrel. Yes, he had a way with the ladies, I guess. But Booth's current girlfriend was the daughter of an ardent abolitionist U.S. Senator, Lucy Hale.
0: So with Lucy as his date and his end to the Lincoln circle, Booth even got a prime seat at Lincoln's second inaugural address, bragging to a friend that he had had a really great chance to kill the president then. You can even see Booth in the picture of Lincoln giving his address. The kidnapping plans ultimately kept falling through though, and soon enough, the motive to stage a kidnapping in the first place disappeared. So the point of kidnapping instead of killing had been to to exchange Lincoln for Confederate prisoners of war. But on April 9, 1865, the war ended. So what are you going to do? Ironically, though, it was Lincoln's speech on Reconstruction, which took place just a few days after that on the White House lawn, that really fired up Booth, made him decide that he didn't want to give up the plan of kidnapping. He wanted to escalate it to something more. He had attended that speech with co-conspirator Lewis Powell and left it swearing that it would be Lincoln's last speech.
1: So the right opportunity for Booth came almost immediately when he read in the paper that the president and Mrs. Lincoln were due to attend a performance of Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater in D.C. the night of April 14th. So after months of plotting for more elaborate scenarios, he swung into action. He lined up his co-conspirators into a three-pronged attack, which was meant to cripple the government. Powell, a former Confederate soldier, would assassinate the Secretary of State William Seward with the help of David Harold. George Atzerodt, a German immigrant and former boatman for Confederate spies, would assassinate Vice President Andrew Johnson. And Booth himself would assassinate Lincoln. And all these attacks would take place at approximately 10 p.m. on that night.
0: So the morning of the assassination, Booth was spotted with Lucy Hale, whose father was probably at that same time meeting with Lincoln about his new appointment to Spain. Lucy Hale's father was looking to get out of D.C. along with his daughter, get her away from crazy actor, Booth. But at about 6 p.m. that night, Booth entered Ford's Theater, which was pretty empty at that point, and tampered with the door to the president's box, fixing it so that the outer door of the box could be jammed from the inside. After that, he just had hours to kill, you know, trying to passes time. The theater's conductor, William Withers Jr., who was pretty psyched to have the song he had uh, composed, performed for the president that night, was also killing time and spotted Booth at an actor's bar nearby the theater. And according to a Richard Sloan article in American Heritage, Withers even heard somebody joke, quote, "'Oh, Booth will never be as great an actor as his father.'" which sounds like fighting words most of the time with Booth. But Booth just replied pretty coolly, quote, when I leave the stage for good, I will be the most famous man in America.
1: So during the third act, Booth re-entered the theater and walked into the president's box. He waited for a line in the play that he knew would get big laughs. I mean, remember, he was an actor, so he would have known that sort of thing. Then he bust into the inner door and shot Lincoln in the back of the head with a forty-four caliber jeringer Booth had been expecting General and Mrs. Grant to also be in the box, and that's what the papers had announced, so that's pretty much what he thought was going to happen but the grants had turned down the invite and booth instead found the union officer major henry rathbone and his fiance clara harris so rathbone of course sees what has happened and he kind of tussles with booth getting slashed in the arm before booth jumps over the boxes railing shouting seek semper tyrannis thus always to tyrants and he caught a spur on the American flag, landed on the stage below, and broke his leg. From there, the conductor Withers ran into him again. Withers, who had taken an underground passageway around to the stage to question why his special song that he'd written (laughs) kept getting pushed back, he heard a pistol shot, the thump, and then found himself face-to-face with Booth.
0: A slashing, mad Booth, too. Booth managed to escape down the passage, out to an alley, and then on horseback to Maryland. We're going to pick up with him later, but what about the other conspirators? Because remember, this was a three-pronged attack. We know things must have not worked out quite according to plan, because Johnson did go on to become president, he lived, and Seward went on to buy Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million, something that was mocked at the time, called Seward's folly, but enough on that. Atserat, who was commissioned to kill the vice president, just completely chickened out. I think he went out drinking instead and got nowhere near Johnson. Powell, though, did some pretty serious damage to the Seward family. He arrived at their home under the guise of a pharmacy delivery boy. Um, he went into Seward's house, where the Secretary of State was laid up after a very serious carriage accident. He had broken an arm and his jaw, and uh, that those injuries required pretty serious bandaging to his face and head, which is a key point here. So when Powell entered the home and was trying to deliver, Deliver his medicine, Seward's son Frederick met him but wouldn't allow him upstairs to deliver the items personally. So at that point Powell pulled out a gun, tried to shoot Frederick but found that his gun wouldn't fire and pistol whipped him instead. Then he charged up the stairs, started slashing Seward, bedridden Seward with a bowie knife in front of Seward's daughter too uh, until finally the military officer who had been uh, assigned to Seward during his convalescence, grappled with Powell and uh, Seward's other son joined in too, um, ended up getting injured. A colleague of Seward's got injured too. Powell really did some serious damage, but did manage to escape. Nobody was killed in this incident. Seward and his sons recovered, um, but his wife died just a few weeks after because of the double shock of the carriage accident and then this violent, bloody attack in her home.
1: And Just to return and kind of pick up with the Lincoln portion of the story, Lincoln, meanwhile, is dying from a head wound. The first doctor on the scene was Charles Sabin Taft, who ordered Lincoln to be removed to the nearest home. The president was brought across the street to the lodging house of William Peterson and placed diagonally across the bed because he was too tall to just lie on it. Properly, While the Surgeon General cared for the President, Dr. Taft stayed in attendance, journaling the next morning that he had held Lincoln's head almost all throughout the night.
0: He talked about how heavy it was to just hold it there all night. The President was pronounced dead at 7.22 a.m., and then the Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton, proclaimed, quote, now he belongs to the ages, one of the more famous quotes about Lincoln. In the President's pockets were a pocket knife two pairs of glasses and a Confederate $5 bill, which I think is the most unusual item there. Okay, so after the president dies, of course, the next day was Easter Sunday, which was the absolute perfect time to compare Lincoln's death to Jesus' sacrifice from pulpits across the country. So Everybody is talking about Lincoln, and everybody is talking about his assassin. After an autopsy, Lincoln lay in state at the White House and the Capitol before being sent on a 13-day train trip back to Springfield with plenty of open casket viewings. Uh, just a side note here, Val notes in her book that this was really great publicity for the new trend in embalming, seeing the president so many days after he had been killed.
1: Meanwhile, as the president's body is traveling around, the search for Booth and his accomplices is heating up. It's the largest manhunt to that date. And it was helped along by the Secretary of War's $100,000 reward, which incidentally also helped shore up the historical record because according to a Smithsonian article by James Swanson, so many of Booth's trackers documented the experience because they were trying to get a piece of the reward. And
0: a lot of them did. It was split up among many different people. After fleeing Ford's theater, Booth had met up with David Harold, who, if you remember, was supposed to be on the Powell Seward assassination team. He had left Powell, though, behind at the Seward house. Those two hightailed it for the Maryland home of Dr. Samuel Mudd, who set Booth's leg, and then they spent five nights and five days in the woods waiting to cross the Potomac into Virginia. They had a little help though.
1: Yeah, a Confederate agent named Thomas Jones brought them food and newspapers. And it was a big disappointment when Booth read those papers. People hated him. He thought that he would be considered a hero, the destroyer of a tyrant. And he journaled all of these feelings, complaining that people were talking about him as a, quote, common cutthroat. Once in Virginia, Booth and Harold wound their way to the farm of Richard Garrett, where they stayed under assumed names. Though they must have seemed like desperate men, the Garretts allowed them to sleep in their tobacco barn, but actually locked them in at night so that they wouldn't steal any horses. That night, Lieutenant Edward Doherty, in charge of the 16th New York Cavalry, along with detectives Luther Baker and Everton Conker, tracked the men to the farm, The Garrett's dog started barking at the sound of horses, and so Booth and Harold, of course, woke up. They tried to escape but found themselves locked in. By the time they were trying to kick out a board, the farmhouse was surrounded.
0: So old man Garrett and his sons were pushed around a bit by the search party until they admitted where the men were in the tobacco barn. One of the sons was even forced to enter the barn and try to disarm Booth. Nobody else wanted to go in. Booth basically told him, you sold me out get out or I'll kill you. But despite having a whole cavalry, the law enforcement officers really kind of dithered about what to do because they did have orders to bring back Booth alive. He was, of course, wanted for questioning, but nobody wanted to get killed either, and everybody fully expected that that would happen if they had a face-to-face with the armed and desperate Booth.
1: So their solution was burn the barn harold begged to be let out and he eventually is let out booth on the other hand poses a kind of challenge to baker makes him a little proposition combat on open ground booth against the cavalry just as long as they back up from the barn door he creepily mentions to baker how honorable he's been the whole time he says quote captain i have had half a dozen opportunities to shoot you But I did not. So at this point, Baker (laughs) realizes, oh, yeah, I'm holding this candle. So he loses that target. You can
0: see him through the barn, the cracks in the barn walls.
1: Yeah, he gets rid of that, but he declines Booth's offer. He says, quote, we did not come here to fight you. We simply came to make you a prisoner. Booth reduces the demands of his offer at that point. He says that he'll come out and fight if the men just back off from the door just a little bit. Give me a chance for my life, he says. But that just was not happening. So Booth says, well, my brave boys, prepare a stretcher for me. But the way it went down, it was actually more like a bonfire. They finally set the barn on fire. The barn goes up in flames really fast. And in the panic of Booth trying to get out, he gets shot by a Sergeant Boston Corbett.
0: Who, as a side note, was possibly a mad hatter. He did go insane, and it might have been because of the mercury used in hat making. Back to Booth, though. He was caught before he even hit the ground from getting shot by Boston Corbett, and he was presumed dead. In fact, though, he was paralyzed from the neck down. He could talk a little bit and move his eyes, but he couldn't swallow the water that was offered to him. He had to watch as Colonel Everton Conger checked his pockets and removed money and keys and tobacco and a compass. When Conger went into an inner pocket, he found the diary Booth had been keeping, you know, lamenting the fact he was a national hero, plus five photos of different ladies. One was a lesser known actress. Two were pretty famous leading ladies of the day. One was a soubrette type actress who was married to a violinist. And then the last one was Lucy Hale. So I don't know if Lucy maybe had a surprise when she heard the news He had five photos in his pocket, but his official last words were, tell mother I die for my country. But he also had a few other last requests. He kept on asking to be able to examine his lifeless hands. He begged the soldiers to kill him. It sounds like a really gruesome, really horrible death. He died by the morning of April 26th.
1: Booth's body was secretly buried, but then reinterred a few years later at his family plot in Baltimore. But the wild conspiracy theories began almost right away. The main one, of course, was that Booth didn't die. Instead, as the theory goes, he escaped, took the name John St. Helen, and went west. He told a lawyer in Texas that he was Booth, but left town. In 1903, then, the lawyer saw a clipping that a David E. George committed suicide in Oklahoma and had confessed he was Booth before dying. The lawyer recognized the photo as that of none other than St. Helen. George's body was mummified, which I'm not sure quite why, and it toured freak shows as Booth's body until at some point it went missing.
0: So the Baltimore City Circuit Court has been petitioned even fairly recently to have Booth's body exhumed, including by some of Booth's own relatives. But they've declined for two reasons. One, there's really not much basis for this claim. It's probably Booth buried at the... Memorial. Secondly, though, it would involve exhuming a lot of the other booths in the family plot. Almost all of those kids of Junius Brutus are buried there, and it's not really clear where each individual family member is located.
1: So now that we at least kind of know, think we know, what happened to Booth, what happened to the rest of his companions? Well, they were also snatched up over time. Harold surrendered at the barn, as we mentioned. Powell, Atzerott, and the boarding house owner, Mary Surratt, were taken in, and those four were all found guilty of murder and sentenced to hang. Surratt's sentence is still kind of controversial, though, since while she definitely knew about the kidnapping plan, she may not have known everything about the murder.
0: Also found guilty and sentenced to prison were Dr. Mudd, the guy who had set Booth's leg, Samuel Arnold, who had been in on the kidnapping plot but had dropped out earlier, and Michael O'Loughlin, who had also dropped out of the plot before it turned to a murderous one. And then finally, Edmund Spangler, who had worked at Ford's Theater, got a six-year sentence. There's another conspirator, though, Mary Surratt's son, John Surratt Jr., who wasn't caught for a remarkable 20 months. I mean, consider again, this was the largest manhunt to date. They were all out looking for this guy. When he finally was apprehended, he wasn't even convicted of a crime. So it's questionable whether John Surratt Jr. was even in Washington, D.C. the night of the assassination, and of course he denied it. But after it, he fled to Montreal, where he was hidden by a priest for a while, and eventually put on a boat to Liverpool, where he made his way to Rome, and according to a Don Bryson article in America's Civil War, actually enlisted in the papal infantry guards there, which sounds pretty bizarre and surprising, but Surratt finally revealed his identity. He had a hard time keeping that information to himself, and the Vatican agreed to extradite him. But before that could actually happen, he escaped from six papal soldiers, made his way to Naples, and then got on a ship to Alexandria, Egypt, where he finally got off the ship and ran into the American authorities. So after they caught him, you know, the U.S. District Attorney desperately wanted to convict Surratt. But the prosecution was pretty weak, and the trial ended in a hung jury. An attempt to reindict him on uh, the same charges was eventually dismissed after the statute of limitations on those charges had passed, so Surratt went free. Kind of one of the stranger sides of the whole Lincoln conspiracy story.
1: Okay, so what about some of the lesser-known victims of this assassination, including Lincoln's theater guests, we mentioned briefly. Well, Major Henry Rathbone, who tried to stop Booth from escaping and was stabbed in the arm, was still blamed for not stopping the killer. It started to drive him insane. This is the guilt from this. Eventually, he and Clara married, and they had children and moved to Germany, but he ended up shooting and killing her.
0: And he was actually going to try to kill their children too before a nanny stopped him. There is also one final twist to this whole story and it involves an old seemingly nonsensical word game type statement and that is Booth saved Lincoln's life. Okay, so we're not trying to make some sort of commentary on Lincoln's reputation through the ages or something having to do with his being assassinated. It's actually a fact. Booth saved Lincoln's life, but it's a different Booth and a different Lincoln So it's pretty well known how much family tragedy Mrs. Lincoln faced. Only one of her four sons lived to adulthood. So when her eldest son, Robert, came of age to fight in the Civil War, Mrs. Lincoln, having already lost two of her boys, refused to let him go fight. The president was kind of embarrassed by it. But Robert instead went off to college and only joined up the Army in February 1865, even then in a pretty cushy position. He was a member of General Grant's staff. He got to see Lee surrender. He wasn't really in too much danger. At one point in
1: college, though, about 1863 or 1864, somewhere in there, he was traveling from New York to D.C. when his train stopped in Jersey City. Robert later recalled that a crowd was standing on the platform waiting to buy sleeping car places when the train began to move. He somehow got knocked over and dropped in the gap between the platform and the train. So he couldn't move. He could have been crushed. I mean, it sounds just like a horrifying, scary situation. Suddenly, he felt someone grab his collar and haul him up. And that person was Edwin Booth, who was, of course, a super famous actor. It would be almost as if Brad Pitt came in and saved your life.
0: That was the comparison I was thinking of. If you suddenly are lifted out of the train pit and you're looking at one of the most famous people of your day... Unlike his younger brother, though, Edwin Booth was a supporter of the Union and Lincoln and considerably more even-tempered. He had uh, kind of gone off the rails earlier in life and had ended up missing his wife's death in 1863 because he was too drunk. So he had really sobered up and kind of had much more moderate opinions than some members of his family. Uh, He did learn whose life he saved, that he had saved the president's son, when he got a letter from a friend who was on Grant's staff, who had heard Robert Lincoln telling the story as anybody would, like this super famous actor saved my life recently. Isn't that an interesting story? So after John Wilkes
1: Booth assassinated the president, Edwin Booth felt particularly devastated. The loss of a leader he admired, the family shame it caused, and fear that he'd never be able to work again. Booth did make a successful return to the stage in January 1866 in his signature role of Hamlet and went on to found the players in New York City with Mark Twain and General Sherman. But the knowledge that he had helped save a Lincoln helped to get him through the worst months after the assassination.
0: We do have one last spooky tidbit for you, though, relating to both Edwin Booth and Lincoln's assassination. During Edwin's 1893 funeral, Ford's Theater collapsed. It wasn't rebuilt until the 1960s, and now it's under uh, operation as a historical site. So I think that's a good point to transition to listener mail. So I thought this one would be appropriate since we last heard from Listener Hillary, who's sending us postcards through her tour of Europe, uh, when she mentioned she has a violin from the Civil War era, so she especially likes Civil War era topics. Um, her latest postcard is from Madrid, and she wrote uh, after the concert she played there, they're playing Prokofiev's Violin Concerto Number no. 1. She said that her teacher met that composer over that piece, and his second violin concerto was premiered in the hall where she played so there were all sorts of historical connections again i really like relating modern cultural events like this to historical ones it's pretty neat
1: yes and i continue to get even more jealous i just love madrid
0: i know one of my
1: favorite places
0: sounds like it would be a nice place to play violin too yeah or do do just about anything Just, (laughs) just do anything so thank you hillary we do enjoy getting your updates from your travels, and we enjoy hearing from all of you guys, so please continue sending us suggestions. I think Booth was suggested, Edwin Booth was suggested pretty recently. Even today? If, was it today?
1: I think it was today. It's so weird when we get requests on the day that we're actually recording the podcast of whatever the request is.
0: are not as spooky as the theater falling down on the day of a funeral, but still, I do wonder if people can like read our minds or something <laughs> when it's happening. I hope not. So, no, I hope not to. But continue sending us suggestions. We get so many of our ideas from you guys. And remember that now we're at History Podcast at Discovery.com instead of HowStuffWorks.com. We have changed email addresses. We do, however, have the same Twitter account at Missed in history and the same Facebook.
1: And if you want to learn a little bit more about some other things that happened during the Civil War era, maybe you're a buff like Hillary is, we have an article called How the Emancipation Proclamation Worked, and you can find that by searching on our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing
1: possibilities of tomorrow. The House Works iPhone app has arrived. Download
0: it today on iTunes.